0: All right, Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to make our way as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. And if you want to grab a Bible in the seat pocket in front of you, feel free to do that. Uh, If you're more technologically savvy and you want to type in Matthew 14, we're going to be beginning in verse 22 this morning and hopefully prayerfully finish out the 14th chapter. But uh, by way of reminder, as you're headed that way, where we were last week is Jesus feeding the 5,000, and this very famous story that takes place not only in Matthew, but in uh, actually all the gospel accounts. So most stories do not actually occur throughout the entirety of the gospel messages. Um, this one, though, did, that we covered last week. And Jesus there feeds 5,000, we're told uh, 5,000 men in Scripture, which means uh, more than likely with uh, women and children, a very conservative estimate would be some 15,000 people were actually able to eat on that day out of just the five loaves and the two fish. And where uh, where we looked at or where we landed was we see Christ in Scripture first giving thanks for what was provided. Now, what was actually provided to him was very meager, right? Oftentimes, we look at our resources and what we have to give the Lord, and we go, boy, I just don't have much to offer. Like, I don't, I don't know much about Scripture. I'm not the most savvy when it comes to, to working through the Word of God. I don't have much to give. And yet, uh, from this little boy who only had five loaves and two fish, uh, thousands upon thousands were blessed. And so all Christ actually asks of us is to just give what we have. Give what it is we have to work with. But it begins with thanks. And I want to mention that because um, if you struggle at times with seeing blessings in your life, and I'm not talking about just physical blessings. I'm talking about a feeling of being blessed. um, Ask yourself this, am I thankful? (laughs) Because before there's blessing, there is always first thankfulness. And in fact, where thankfulness exists, uh, arrogance and pride, those things get chased off when we are thankful. And so he begins by giving thanks for what was provided, and then from that he proceeds with the breaking of the bread. And we talked about that the blessing didn't happen until after there was brokenness. That that first there is thanks, and then a breaking, and then a, a blessing takes place for all that are there to enjoy. And so Oftentimes, what we find is in our lives, others are actually blessed through our brokenness, through our vulnerability. Now, that's scary. We don't like to be vulnerable around people. But think back to the times you've been truly vulnerable around others, and what you find is instantly a connection. You find huge blessings in their lives, and then we have the opportunity to grow together from that point forward. Now, all this began in verse 13 with Jesus just trying to get away and get some quiet time. In verse 13, he has it in his heart. He wants to go up into the areas surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and he just wants to get away and have a little bit of quiet time. But for uh, any of you that have children know, uh, quiet time can sometimes be elusive. It can sometimes uh, vanish in an instant. We have our hearts set. We want some quiet. And then... uh, what I call them, my little three-headed Jesus suckers. They show up, and they just, quiet time gone, right? And and for me, at least, it's frustration, there's anger, and I'm just trying to have some quiet time to be with Jesus. Can't you tell I want to be with Jesus? Not how Christ reacted at all. (laughs) He, in fact, looked at them and had compassion. He had compassion upon these souls that gathered there around him, and then he ministered to them. Once he had ministered to them, he then, where we're going to find ourselves starting today, can have an opportunity to actually pray and find some time with the Father. And so in verse 22, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat. There you go, parents. That's how you get quiet time. Put them on a boat. They got into a boat and go... Before him to the other side. And so he sends them off to the other side of the Galilee before him. And while he sent the multitudes away, in verse 23, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when the evening had come, he was alone. And so we begin here in verse 22, where Jesus sends the disciples off to the other side, and he begins to finally have an opportunity uh, to just simply pray. He gets them loaded up. They're headed that way. And what does he do? He goes up onto the mountain, and he intends to just be with the Lord, to just spend time, him and Jesus And I encourage you last week, if you don't have a quiet spot, a place where you can sneak off and get away and just simply be, um, you need to. Uh, The best example I can give or or, or analogy I can give to you about how we live our lives, it's that each of us have an engine. Like the way we operate, we all have different kinds of engines. Some of you are are like a Cummins diesel. And I mean, you can go down the highway and you can just roll and roll for millions of miles and and you seemingly never need to stop. Forgetting that they do create rest stops for a reason. Every now and again, you've got to pull over to the side of the road, a little nap, and then you're ready to go again. Now, others of you are like a Chevy 454 big block. I mean, you're built for torque and for power. And oh, 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 like you're ready to, to have a, uh, you know, you're ready to just race somebody. Also a little susceptible to burnouts from time to time. But nevertheless, you're built for power. Now then, there are those of you that are like me, I'm more like a Briggs and Stratton right? So a little hard to start sometimes, but once you get me going, I'm great at mowing a yard. And I need oil. Uh, sometimes the exhaust is a little noisy. The occasional backfire you might hear if you get too close. Uh, but I'm also susceptible to overheating, right? There are others of us that are just built like that, right? So, so for each of us, we're, we're made in a different way, and none of that is a surprise to God. None of it. But in each spot, we all need rest, We all need a little bit of recharge, recoup time, and Jesus is giving us an example as to how we are to handle these situations, and it begins by being introspective. You have to begin to pick up on the signs when you're getting worn out. I shared with you one of my favorite sayings last week, that when your uh, output exceeds your input, your upkeep will be your downfall. If your output exceeds how much input you get in, you are going to eventually crash and Burn, And so what Christ is doing is he's giving us an example of what it looks like to get away and how to recharge. And what he does is he simply goes up onto the mountain to pray, just to spend time with him and his Father. Now, in his prayer time, and I think this is important for us to consider as well, is that it's not always supposed to be a monologue, <laughs> that most of the time we get away with the Lord and we want to just give him a monologue. I mean, it's just download, dump, here you go, here you go, and then we're done. i got nothing more to say to you, God. I'll see you later. I'm signing off. But the reality is he wants to have a dialogue with us. So if you don't put yourself in a spot to actually listen, I came up with this all on my own, if you don't put yourself in a spot to listen, you're not going to hear from him. You're not going to be able to hear from the Lord if you don't put yourself in a position to just simply listen. And so he positions himself in a spot where he can actually dialogue with the Father. They can have a back and forth where he can just get away and be with God the Father. And notice with me, though, he positions himself up on a mountain. He goes up onto a mountain as he sends the disciples away. Now, the Sea of Galilee is an interesting sea. It's not actually a sea at all. It's a lake. It's a freshwater lake in northern Israel. It's only 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And so if you look at the way it's set, there's a picture up here on the screen. As you're up on the mountains, you can actually see from one side all the way to the other. It's this beautiful scenic setting. I think that's important for us because um, as he sends the apostles away, his disciples in the boat, he never actually loses sight of them. He goes up to a place on high, and yet he can see what's taking place uh, the entire time with them. Now, geographically, it's also interesting because uh, the Sea of Galilee is positioned in a way where they get these uh, western winds that come off of the Arabian Desert, this uh, dry, uh, warm air. And what happens is it actually meets together with a, a cool, moist air coming off of the Mediterranean Sea, and those converge together at the Sea of Galilee, which means tremendous storms can actually happen at almost a moment's notice. And so we'll continue on with that in mind in verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, They were troubled, or the word could be translated terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. In verse 28, And Peter answered him, saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said to him, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And so, again, we've got this setting here at the Sea of Galilee, a place that's prone to these severe storms, and they left in the evening, we're told, or at the beginning of the evening. Now, for the Jews over there, they actually take the evening hours and they split them up into four watches. So they take the evening time from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and they split it into three or four equal three-hour increments. So the first watch is from 6 to 9, second from 9 to 12. You get the idea, but as you go through this, what you find is they set off before 6 p.m., and it's now somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. that they've been trying to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. It's only eight miles by boat. That's maybe at the most a two-hour journey. They've been now working at this, for eight or nine straight hours. And these guys, by the way, were fishermen. This is what they did for a living. At least four of them, if not seven of the 12, were professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. So they were struggling mightily with some kind of a storm event that was perhaps even supernatural. And so as they're here now struggling in the middle of the sea, Jesus watches. He's been watching this entire time. He knows precisely what's taking place in their lives. He then walks out to them to meet them at the spot that they're in. And we see in verse 28, Peter being, uh, you know, boisterous and and, and the one that's the brave one of the bunch. He says, Lord, if it's you, I want to come out to you. And now as we look at this story, which has been studied and and probably people a lot more intelligent than I have uh, sharing it with you. I want to ask a few questions. First of all does Peter have anything to gain personally by getting out to Jesus? And I think the answer is is no. He he wasn't thinking in his head, boy, if I can walk on the water, I'm going to somehow be able to go and share motivational speeches throughout the universe, going to write a great book that people are going to buy. He didn't have any of these things in mind. Um, But instead, what we see in, in verse 29 is he just simply wanted to be closer to Jesus. He wanted to go out to where Jesus was. Which leads me to my uh, next question, and, and that's this. Why do you do what you do? Why is it you do the things that you do throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your month? Is it for fame, for fortune, or is it simply to be closer to Jesus? I'll take it a step further. Why are you here today? <laughs> Many of you are asking that question as soon as we started. Why did I come here today? Not sure. Why are you here today? Is it because of Jake and Michaela? I mean, they are awesome. I mean, they're really good. You know, they're tremendous worship leaders. Is it because of me? Perhaps you came because of me. Now, just a few weeks ago, I had someone share with me, and I won't reveal any names to, to save them the embarrassment, um, but this person said to me, you know, um, we don't come here because uh, you're a great speaker. I'm like, well, thank you. Thank you for that. And, and we don't come here because uh, you're really great looking. I'm like, "Wow, this so far is going really well. But But here's, but here's the thing. Maybe the best compliment I've gotten yet because what he said was we come here because you teach the word of God when we set out to start this church the only thing we intended to do was open the doors to a place that was utterly unpretentious it looks a little pretentious because we've got awesome columns and a steeple that's not the point the point was to open the doors and that anyone Any walk of life, any person coming in here from any spot would feel like they could be welcomed in like a member of the family. That's it. And then to teach the word of God. If you're coming here or anywhere else that you go and it's for a reason other than to be closer to Jesus, I think you need to check your motives at the door. That's precisely where Peter was at. He just simply wanted to be closer to the Lord and so many times what we find is we're stuck in the middle of a storm in life right that that there is all kinds of crazy going on all around us and what's our cry to the Lord Lord deliver me Lord get me out of this mess Lord somehow you got to save me and what he's really trying to do is say I just want you to get closer to me I just want you to be closer to me Continuing on in verse 30. But when he, Peter, saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased. And so... Uh, this is, you've probably heard this uh, pointed out before, and yet it's nonetheless poignant. When Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he could walk on water. He could literally do anything as long as his eyes were on Jesus. But the minute his eyes were diverted to his circumstance, remember, this was a tremendous storm. As soon as he began to look around and the circumstances started to pile up, he was terrified and he began to, sink now what peter does in verse 30 i think is important and something i at least fail at often he immediately sees the situation and cries out lord save me most of the time i try to figure out how to get out of it on my own how can i first save myself what, what things can I do or can I put in place? And I begin to analyze and overanalyze. And next thing you know, I'm paralyzed because I've analyzed everything about the situation. And, and what Peter does is he just cries out, Lord, you've got to save me. Now then, Jesus' response, I think, is the next important thing for us to consider. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hands and caught him. By the way, the word in Greek for immediately can be translated immediately. He did not delay. He stretched out his hand and he took a hold of Peter. He did not stop and say, listen, Peter, this is going to make a tremendous sermon. Can you just hang on a minute? I'm going to tell you and explain to you all the ways you've failed in this situation. Let me just lay it out there for you. I'll give you three points in a poem before we're all done. He doesn't stop to do that. And yet so often I think about people bringing things to me, and I think, boy, what they really need is they need a lesson right here. They need a full-on Bible study when all they really wanted out of me was, a, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you're going through. As a church, we are called to be paramedics, not police. More often than not, we want to completely analyze the situation when people bring problems to us, we want to go through a full-on investigation. We want to know precisely what took place that got you into this spot. How exactly is it that you're drowning? But the people on the other hand, what they want to say is, I'm drowning! I'm drowning! I'd like a flipping hand here. How about a life raft? Anything to get me up out of the water. You can preach later, because I'm drowning. What we are called to do is be paramedics. We're called to look at the situation and go, you know what, this needs a tourniquet. This needs some pressure applied in a hurry because before I can finish my preaching, they're gonna bleed out. We're called as a church to apply pressure and to do it quickly and immediately. Now, is there opportunity to grow after that situation? Absolutely, but first we have to get the bleeding to stop. Now notice with me the next uh, verse in verse 32. And when when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Two things I want to point out in this verse. It seems like a small verse, and yet there are two very key lessons that we can pull out of this. Um, The first is, uh, notice Jesus didn't just throw Peter over his shoulder and do the firearm carry and take him all the way to the other side. He didn't he actually put him right back in the same boat. He put him back in the same situation he was already in in the first place so that he could go to the other side. You see, the thing is, um, with the tests of the Lord, um, good news, they're all pass-fail. If we don't pass them the first time, what we continue to get is the same test over and over and over and over again, like Groundhog Day, until we pass it. Now here's the better news. Once you've passed that test you're going to get another test. It's great. But this is how we grow. You guys see that wasp right there? Michaela did. Heads up for the flying wasp. Listen, Satan does not want this message to go forth. Get thee behind me, Satan. Alright. The wasp will be okay. I promise. The point is that God's tests are past fail. We continue to get these same tests over and over again. But here's the thing, when they went back into the boat, he did not put him in the boat by himself. Notice the pronouns there with me. And they got into the boat. Jesus isn't gonna put you back in the boat by yourself. First of all, he was watching what was taking place the entire time, he knew precisely the spot they were in. But then when the opportunity presented itself, He goes down to be with Peter, helps Peter up, puts him back into the same boat, and then uh, they go to the other side. The word of the Lord was, go to the other side. There could have been no safer place on the planet than the boat that these guys were in. Do you know why? Because the Lord said, go to the other side. So in the middle of the situation where they were convinced they were probably going to drown in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, they were not because the Lord said go to the other side they were going to make it to the other side and the same is true in our situations we want so badly for God to just pull us up out of there and carry us over and yet we would have completely missed the lesson altogether had he done that now then verse 33 and then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, Jesus is often referred to by his disciples as a rabbi. The term rabbi just simply means a teacher. And we know that any good teacher is going to test his students. We want to check and see how you're doing with things. How's your faith growing in this spot? You're going to be tested. But the question is, so often... Why do we have to have storms? Why do we have to have any kind of trial or testing in our life? And I want to share two reasons that the Lord allows storms in our life. The first is for correction. We see Jonah, the story of Jonah, is a story of Jonah wanting to go the opposite direction of what God said. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm going to go the opposite way to Tarshish. And so he takes off in a boat and he goes the opposite direction. And God sends a physical storm into Jonah's life in order to redirect him. Corrective storms are put into our lives to redirect us. To get us going in in an opposite direction. Back to the way he said to go in the first place. And so in the case of Jonah, he was determined to set off in the wrong direction. And God instead redirects him back to where he said in the first place. But the second reason that the Lord allows storms in our life is for perfection. He wants to, and this is not a Christian cuss word, I promise, mature us. He wants us to be able to grow up. We've started off as babes in Christ, but he wants to advance us beyond the spot of just simply being babes in Christ to being full-grown, mature adults. He wants to perfect us. He calls us jewels fine gold. What do you do with the fine metal? You have to by fire get the imperfections out. That's how you perfect these things. And so he oftentimes will allow uh, in our lives storms to perfect us. And we are to continue to by faith go through that storm and not turn around and run in the opposite direction. But the question is how do I know if this is a storm to correct me, to redirect me, Or that I'm supposed to charge through and get to the other side. And I think the key is found in verse 22. When we started, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go. If the Lord says to go, you are to go. That's the answer. It gets back to, did He give you direction to go? Because if that's the case, then He's going to see you through it until you get to the other side. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul specifically addressing to the church here in Rome about trials and tribulations. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Anybody gloried in a tribulation this week? I thought not. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is what tribulation produces in the heart of the believer. The tribulation first produces a perseverance. When we learn to persevere, then that perseverance produces a character. Last week I mentioned to you that God is twice as concerned about your character as you are your competency. We're all the time worried about what we know and don't know and how I'm not competent to do this thing. And what God says is, I'm not that worried about your competency. I'm far more worried about your character. Who are you as a person? But perseverance produces character, and then out of character, we grow in hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because our hope is not rooted in us. It's blessed assurance It's a promise of God that's not going to disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is what trials and tribulations actually produce in our life. It's a beautiful thing called hope. Because as we get to the other side, as we survive the trial and the tribulation, you know what happens the next time a trial comes around? We remember the previous trial and tribulation. We begin to build this confidence in knowing if he brought me through up that storm, he's going to bring me through the next storm. Which is why I encourage you to journal. Not a diary, because diaries are girly. Very manly. Journal. It's far different. Journal down what God is up to in your life. As much as you can. If you can do it daily, I'd encourage that. Just write a prayer to the Lord. Lord, this is what's on my heart this morning. I'm pouring this out to you. Lord, this is what I'm praying to you. What I'm hoping to see take place. These are just praises that I want to give you. And then you have the opportunity to go back and be reminded of his goodness in your life. The next storm you now have, the ammunition you need to go, boy, Lord, you were good to me back there. I know you're going to be good to me in this spot it builds us and it builds us this faith in our lives now faith is not believing despite having evidence many of you might think that faith is believing having no evidence whatsoever of god's goodness that's not what he's actually up to but faith is believing in spite of the consequence faith is actually looking down the barrel that and going boy i know there's going to be some rocky parts in this But God said go. God said go. And so I'm going to go even though I know this might sting a little bit. He's going to see me through it. I'm going to be better on the other side. This is what perseverance actually does. It builds character. Now as an example of this, to go back to Genesis chapter 17 in the life of Abraham. Abraham is called by the Hebrews the father of the faith. And we see God coming to him in chapter 12 and he actually pulls Abraham away from his family and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. Actually, Abram was his name at the time. Interestingly enough, he was 75 years old and his name Abram literally translated means a father of many. You know how many kids Abram had? Zero. (laughs) Here's his name, father of many. He has no children. It's 75, mind you. Things are are starting to click away a little bit here. I mean, life's not looking as rosy as what it was when he was 35. But God pulls him off and He says, I'm going to make you a father of nations. Now what we see is Abram growing in his faith with the Lord. Growing in his relationship with God. And we we get to uh, chapter 17. And in chapter 17, uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old. 24 years for you math students from when he got the promise back in chapter 12. When he's 99 years old the Lord appeared to him and said I am almighty God walk before me and be blameless and I will make a covenant between you and me and and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked to him saying as for me behold my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram but you shall be called Abraham. I'm going to change your name from the father of many to Abraham, the father of many nations. you know how many children that he and his wife Sarah had at this point? Zero. <laughs> they still had no children together. Now if you go back about 13 years before they decided to take matters into their own hands and Sarah gave Abram her handmaid to sleep with and have a surrogate child. But that's not what God promised. God said, I'm going to make you and Sarah a family of many nations. And so they already taken matters into their own hands years before. Now fast forward to this point. He's now 99 years old and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And I'm going to call your name Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. Not through Ishmael, but through the Son, I'm going to give you through Sarah. This is the promise of God. But then he goes on to say, I'm going to make a covenant now with you, Abraham. In verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations, an everlasting covenant between you and your descendants after you. And I will give to, to you all the lands of Canaan and everlasting an everlasting possession, I will be your God. An unbelievable covenant. And the sign then for the covenant between Abram, Abraham now, and God was this. I'm going to have you circumcise yourself. What? I mean, you've got to believe if you're Abraham, you're like, you, I'm 99. Lord, you want me to do what to my what? I mean, really? And here, it gets better. I want you to go to all the men in your camp. Keep in mind, Abraham now has a huge entourage. He had over 300 fighting men with him. He had to go to the 300 men and go, guess what, it's not just for me, but for uh, all y'all. Don't worry, I've got a really sharp knife. And I stayed at a Kibbutz Express last night. (laughs) It's going to be fine. It's a Jewish joke. It's okay. Here's the thing. The promise was going to cost them. They were going to have to actually cut away the flesh that so easily trips us up so often. In order for him to see the promise, he had to have faith that God was going to see him through this. Even the physical pain that was obviously involved based on the way men are wincing right now, I know you understand. There was a growth, though, in the faith of Abraham. Chapter 12, when he's 75, God doesn't ask him to do this because he hadn't matured in his faith to where Abraham would have withstood it. If he would have asked him to do that back in chapter 12, Abram probably walks off the other direction and says, no thanks. And yet after 25 years of walking with the Lord and seeing God's goodness in his life, he he had to think to himself, you know, this is going to hurt. But God's good. He's always good all the time and at the age of 100 what we see in the life of Abraham and Sarah is they give birth to the child of promise Isaac who would give birth to Jacob who would then be in the line of Yeshua Jesus Christ God's promise was going to stand the consequences were there but God's promise was bigger even in the midst of the storm we have to understand in the midst of storms in our life that He is not going to let us down. He is going to see us through these circumstances. He is going to position Himself in a place on high and pray for us. What was Jesus doing on the mountainside? He was praying. He was praying for these men in the boat. He was actually looking down upon them. And I believe what he was doing is what we see in Hebrews chapter 7. He's positioned himself at the right hand of the Father upon high to make intercession for us. To actually intercede on our behalf in verse 24 of Hebrews 7. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. He is our high priest. Therefore, verse 25, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession. Making intercession on behalf of us while we're in the middle of the storms that we're going through. Continuing on in verse 34, And when they had crossed over they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out all to, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick, and they begged him that, that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well and so just as the promise began back in verse twenty two he sees it all the way to the end. They arrive at the other side, we see there in verse 34, just like he had said. And now then what we see is people now coming desperately to Jesus from all over, just hoping to be healed. And what do they look to? They look to the even touch the hem on his garment that they might be healed. Now, for you Old Testament fans, the hymn that they're speaking of specifically is his Uh, Prayer shawl was his outer covering. His talit is what they're called in Hebrew. And they would wear these. I put a picture of them up there on the screen. But they come from uh, Numbers chapter 15. So in Numbers chapter 15, uh, which by the way, the book of Numbers is a wonderful book. It's not all just Numbers. Don't be scared. There's Numbers at the beginning, Numbers at the end. Lots of awesome stories in the middle. So don't skip that one. Numbers chapter 15 verse 37 Moses here, writing in the law, he says, And again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a a blue thread in the tassels of the corners, that you shall have the tassel, and you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart or your own eyes are inclined that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am holy. The, I am the Lord your God. So what the Lord prescribes in Numbers is that they're to make these tallits, these prayer shawls, and they're to tie these, uh, these tassels on the end. In fact, they were to tie 613 tassels. Uh, That, by the way, is how many commandments are in the Old Testament. So if you think you're going to live by the law strictly and not through the grace provided by Jesus Christ, then all you have to do is follow the top 10 list that we get in Exodus 20. I'm sorry, um, that's not exactly correct. You have 613 commands you have to live out. And if you break one of them, you're a lawbreaker. Now, aren't you thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ? But these uh, Jewish males would wear these talits and at the ends of them were all these tassels and they were to be, as God prescribes here in Numbers 15, reminders of the law, but reminders of God's goodness. And what they actually were was to remind them that they were pulled out of Egypt. Egypt is always a picture of the world in the Old Testament. God says, I brought you out of Egypt and now I have set you apart. The word sanctified literally just means set apart. He sanctified his people, set them apart. And one of the ways they can show this sanctification is by wearing a prayer shawl. It was an outward sign of what God had done in their lives. So just like what we covered with circumcision earlier, which was to be an inward sign, a, a commitment between them and God, a prayer shawl was to be an outward sign for others. Much like Baptism for us, an outward sign of an inward change. And so this is what they were to be. They were to wear these to show that they were sanctified, to show that they believed in God. It was actually a way that they could be holy, for he was holy. That they could follow along with his commandments. It didn't mean that they were perfect. It just meant that they were committed, sanctified, much the same way we are called to be set apart, to be sanctified. And the reality is, if we continue to live in our daily lives um, just the way we always lived, doing the same things, going to the same places, acting in all the same ways we always acted, um, there's no sanctification in that. <laughs> there's actually no set-apartness if that's how we are to operate. How's the world going to know that we're different if we don't show them? And this is a way that they could see, draped across the shoulders of Jesus, that he was different, he was set apart. But in the tassels, you notice with me, they were to have a blue thread tied into those tassels. Now what's the significance of the blue? It was to point them to heaven. The blue was a reminder of heaven. If you think back to the tabernacle, Right, The construction of the tabernacle. And many of you, you try to read through all that in the law and all the chapters on the tabernacle, and oh my gosh, the tabernacle, I'm exhausted from it. Now, interestingly enough, um, God gives us two chapters on the creation, and he gives us 51 chapters about the tabernacle. I think the Lord's trying to communicate something with the tabernacle for us to remember. It was a picture of Heaven. It was a model of heaven. The tabernacle was like a Wi-Fi hotspot for the Holy Spirit to actually exist in their camp. They were to take that with them as a reminder of what God was up to. He would exist there. He would dwell there. Which when we read John chapter 1, verse 14, and we see the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, it has a whole new meaning. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. Jesus came to exist among us to tabernacle with you and I, to move around with us, to actually dwell within us, which means um, for us, we are tabernacles. (laughs) We are called to be tabernacles, a place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. But the thing about the tabernacle is it was never a permanent structure. And for those of you that are getting older, uh, like I struggle to get out of bed today, I know that I've got a tabernacle I'm living in. Right, This thing is wearing out fast. I mean, the joints ain't working like they used to. Still covered in the same canvas. But the the idea is that we're to have a remembrance of heaven within us. They're located within the tabernacle where beautiful colors, most predominantly the color blue. It was to point them back a time that was to be better. A better promise. right? A better future than what they were living in. And so every day as these Jewish males would get dressed, the last thing they would put over themselves was a prayer shawl. A tallit, A remembrance. A reminder of heaven. Of what God was up to in their lives. Now for many churches, in many places what I find is Um, You go and you get the great motivational speech, right? The rah-rah, go get them, live better, live your best life now, right? But here's the problem. Um, What if you're not living your best life now? (laughs) What if you're struggling with disease or sickness or someone you care about uh, is in a hospital? Is that your best life now? You see, we weren't actually called to live our best life now, as Christians, we're called to live our best life for all of eternity. There's an eternal promise to what we're talking about. To where if you suffered through things for a week, a day, a decade, several decades spanned together, it's not that this is the end. This is only a reminder that there are better things to come. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. This is highlighter worthy as we go through this life where things are not by any means perfect, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall be like He is. This is the promise we have to live towards. This is what looking upon the hem of his garment, looking upon the blue that's there, it's to remind us of heaven that we actually get the opportunity to live our best life for all of eternity. And so no longer do we have to be weighed down by all these things because there is a promise someday of a better body, a heavenly body, one that doesn't break down, one that doesn't wear out, where one day all the tears are wiped away. Now that's something we can stand behind. That's something to get excited about when we look upon it. And we're called to remember the blue. The next time you have the blues, remember the blue in the hem of his garment. Where, if you look at what we just finished up with, how many were healed? All were healed. All were healed who came to him. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the promise of heaven. Lord, we thank you that for as many as call upon you, they should be saved. Father, when we think about, and I pray through the words of Isaiah, that the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, but the word of God will last forever. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of your word. Thank you that as we journey through this life and we find ourselves in the middle of a storm and it feels like there's no way this thing could possibly end well, that your word says it will. Thank you that you watch upon high, constantly making intercession for us, seeing that our situation is gonna be brought to an end. One of my favorite praises and all the scripture is and it came to pass Father thank you that even the storms and even the pain it all comes to pass and we have this glorious reminder this unbelievable promise given to us by you that if we just can cling to the hem of your garment we get to be saved thank you for the promise of heaven Lord in Jesus name Amen
1: Would you please stand for the closing song? In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm when the solid ground is falling out from underneath my feet between the black skies and my red eyes i can barely see When I realize I've been sold out by my friends and my family I can feel the rain reminding me In the eye of the storm, you remain in control In the middle of the war, you guard my soul You alone are the anchor when the sails are torn Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. When my hopes and dreams are far from me and I'm running out of faith, I see the future I pictured slowly fade away. When the tears of pain and heartache are pouring down my face. I find my peace in Jesus' name. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when the sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. And the church says,
0: amen. All right, well, thank you again uh, for coming out this morning. Uh, Thank you for for going through that and working through Scripture. Let that just be a reminder uh, one more time that who's actually with us in the eye of the storm. When the disciples realized who was with them in the boat, If you look back at our scripture today, what they did was (laughs) worshipped. When you realize he's in your boat, that's the only thing you'll be left with to do, just simply to fall down and worship. That's how good he is. God bless you guys. See you next week.